0: Welcome to Biocentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of Biocentury, and I'm joined by... Timon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief.
1: Steve Osden, Washington Editor.
0: Karen tkach Senior Editor. On this week's pod, PD-1's back in the spotlight. AACR Abstracts are out. And we'll head to Washington to get an update on a couple of bills, well, more than a couple, winding their way through the halls of Congress. The sponsor for this episode of BioCentury this week is JATO Capital. JATO is a global leading investment company with a patient benefit driven approach that finances and accelerates the development and growth of groundbreaking medical innovation. JATO supports entrepreneurs through its expert integrated, multi-talented team, and through significant capital. For more information, please visit jato.life or follow the firm on Twitter at JTO underscore life or via their LinkedIn profile. Last month, PD-1s from China came under the spotlight as Tivit from Innovent and Lilly was discussed at FDA's ODAC meeting. There was a lot of discussion about China-only trials and some criticism of the trial designs. Simone, you did a survey to find out how China biotech executives are responding. What did
2: you find? Right. Well, thanks, Jeff. First of all, the background. As you pointed out, this issue sort of actually it had been brewing for a while, but it really came to a head at the February the 10th meeting of the ODAC to discuss the BLA for TIVIT, where the committee voted 14 to 1 to require additional trials that would demonstrate applicability to U.S. patients and medical care before they would approve it. And in the week before the ODEC meeting, Richard Pazda, who is director of FDA's Oncology Center of Excellence, had published a commentary and also spoken to BioCentury. And they sent very strong signals saying that they really do not want to see China-only data for PD-1 applications that really mimic things that are already approved and marketed in the U.S. They want to see multi-regional clinical trials that represent the diversity of the U.S. population. And they also want to see active comparator arms with approved agents, overall survival rather than progression-free survival as endpoints. We've discussed this previously on the the pod. And, you know, FDA's view is that there are at least 25 of these MABs coming from China in the pipeline. And a big message from PASDA and FDA was that these China companies need to engage more with FDA. So we surveyed, it was an anonymous survey, it was only C-suite, got responses from 12 CEOs or heads of R&D at China companies with PD-1 inhibitors in the clinic. When I say PD-1, I should say PD-1 or pdl one The interesting thing is the message really resonated. All of them, regardless of their program, almost all of them said they would be increasing their communication, seeking more meetings with FDA. Overall, actually, the sentiment was quite a lot of agreement with FDA, and, and these companies seemed to put some distance between themselves and innovant and Lilly. They mostly said they were already doing global trials. A couple said they would expand those. A couple of other interesting things, though, It has altered their thinking for other programs, both outside of PD-1 and outside of cancer even. And most of the companies said that they would be considering raising money to fund more multi-regional clinical trials, even if they had answered that they were actually already doing a lot of multi-regional trials. The other overwhelming response is that they almost all expect EMA to take a similar position to FDA on China-only trials. And they really see that what FDA is doing in requiring these is going to lead to other global regulatory agencies, even in China, actually following suit.
1: So the question I would have, Simone, is what impact is this going to have on the ability of Chinese companies to disrupt pricing in the United States? There's been some hope. And in fact, Dr. Pastor had expressed that at the AACR meeting in 2019, that the large number of Chinese companies developing PD-1s would create downward pressure on pricing in the United States. If they're going to have to do clinical development programs that are quite similar to the ones that anybody else has to do, is that going to leave them any kind of wiggle room to price their products differently?
2: It's a great question, Steve. I think we should probably start by pointing out there are already at least seven PD-1 inhibitors approved in the US and Europe. And that multiplicity hasn't really led to any downward pricing pressure, any pricing competition. It's clear that these companies are going to be talking to FDA more or seeking more meetings with FDA. But like you say, they're going to have to do more trials that are going to be more expensive. And I don't know how much wiggle room they've got. It is probably the case that if they believe their compounds are very similar, they can dial in the right criteria, but they're going to have to compare it probably with an active comparator, a marketed one, for example, and that's going to raise the bar for them. So yes, it's definitely a question as to whether they're going to be able to create any pricing advantage. But of course, that's not FDA's brief.
1: No, it's not FDA's brief, but it's what everybody else is looking at it. I think I think as a practical matter, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult for anyone, any company, to test a PD 1 against head to head against a marketed PD 1 because the trials are going to have to be so enormous and it's going to be so difficult and time consuming to recruit other patients. I think that a side effect of what FDA is doing is going to be to direct new PD 1s solely to indications where there aren't approved. PD1s, certainly where there aren't PD1s that have been approved based on a survival benefit, that's going to undercut efforts to lower the prices because if the new PD1s are going to be in these kind of niche indications where there's no other PD1 approved, then there'll be no reason for them to price them below the levels of other PD1s. It's
2: a fair point, Steve. I think you're right. A couple of respondents said that they were thinking about different indications. We don't know who responded what. I do suspect that some of them may have had earlier phase programs, but you've got a bunch of companies. They say they're doing global trials. I don't know what indications, but if those trials are not against active comparators, but have good data and it's multi-regional, which is one of the things that FDA made a big point of, that the data have to represent the US population. Are they going to be turned away if they don't have an active comparator on, I don't know.
1: I think it's quite likely based on what FDA said. There may be some exceptions to that, but I wouldn't bet on it.
0: All right, results of the survey are up online on our website, biocentury.com, along with Simone's analysis. Abstracts came out last week ahead of this year's American Association for Cancer Research Conference in New Orleans. It starts April 8th. Karen, what were you spotting among the translational abstracts at AACR?
3: Thanks, Jeff. It was nice to take an opportunity to look at what companies are putting out about their preclinical data. This doesn't tend to be the headline-making, market-moving things, but it gives us a peek at what's coming up in the pipeline um, and some of the science behind it. Of course, being a targeted degradation junkie, I'm always looking to see what's going on there. and Looks like there'll be some data from Chimera about one of their earlier programs, a MDM2 degrader. The target's a regulator of the P53 pathway. And then some interesting other uh, approaches. Nurix, for example, has this bifunctional compound that degrades both BTK and the image substrates, ILOs and Icarus. There's a Korean company, Orum Therapeutics, that has an antibody conjugated degrader it targets a GSPT1 degrader to HER2 expressing tumors. So that's kind of a new approach. And then kind of stepping outside of protein degradation and looking more broadly at degradation to other molecules. Paleon has these compounds in development to trim basically sugar residues off of proteins that are immunosuppressive to unleash immune responses. And so they're going to have some preclinical data on that. And then looking around, uh, another thing that caught my eye was that a couple companies had abstracts that target this protein Sybil B. It looks like it's an inhibitor of immune cell activation. And so you had on one hand, Encarta and CRISPR in their NK cell programs, they were knocking it out in the NK cells to get better NK cell activation. And then you also had some small molecule approaches where Nurix and Hotspot Therapeutics each have Sybil b inhibitors that basically you would treat T cells with it before adoptive transfer to inhibit this immunosuppressive activity of it. So that was a kind of interesting target that seems to be on the rise. Another thing that caught my eye was there's going to be on April 12th, a session called targeting the RAS oncogene. There's presentations from both revolution medicines and frontier medicines about compounds that hit the on form of KRAS so the compounds from Amgen and Mirati that are marketed or in late stage those hit the off form so the GDP bound form of the target and these engage the active GTP bound form so it seems like an interesting session to check out
0: excellent well civil B that uh, that sounds like a sally field vehicle after suffering a small breakdown in front of the other targets Sybil B. <laughs> Sorry. Let's see here. Let's go my to Washington. Time. 1976. Uh, it's, it's true. It's true. Well yeah. before your time, KTT. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's turn to Washington, where Steve Usden has been following the budget bill, which creates ARPA H. Now, I know there's continuing controversy over where this new agency, if I can call it that, will be located. Looking like at NIH. I would like to back up a bit, Steve, and tell our listeners who might not know what is ARPA-H and why is it important?
1: So, first, yeah, the budget bill gave a billion dollars to create ARPA H and for arpa H to spend through September 30, 2024. That sounds like a lot, but it's less than what the Biden administration had asked for. They had asked for six and a half billion dollars over three years. So this is is less than that, but it's still a substantial amount of money. ARPA-H is patterned after DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is credited with having created the internet, GPS, a number of other breakthrough technologies. It did a lot of the groundwork for mRNA technologies and also for rapid discovery of monoclonal antibodies, uh, which have been really important for COVID. So the idea for ARPA-H is that it will be what NIH isn't. It'll be applied research that will be directed by hands-on project managers with mission-oriented funding streams. It'll be a short-term, projects will last less than a couple of years. And the idea is to create tangible results in a very short period of time. The bill that was passed specifies that ARPA-H should be at HHS, and it gives the HHS secretary, Becerra, 30 days to decide where at HHS it should be, and it specifies that he can put it at NIH if he wants to. No doubt that is where he wants to put it, because that's where President Biden wants it, and that's where former NIH Director Francis Collins, who's now the um, acting science advisor to the president, wants it. So that gives a kind of a short fuse for Congress to step in if they want to try to force the administration to put it somewhere else. There is a kind of a faction, especially in the House, Anna Eschew and Fred Upton have co-sponsored a bill that specifies that arpa should be freestanding and shouldn't be at NIH. But I think it's pretty unlikely that they'll be able to get that enacted in time to actually change the course of events.
2: Steve? Why is it such a big deal about whether it's inside NIH or not? And, and what are the kind of hassles or tassels, uh, I should say, really around that?
1: So the idea of ARPA-H is that it's supposed to be able to do things that NIH can't do. And the people who, who originally came up with the idea for ARPA-H and who are advocating for it say that it won't be able to do those things if it's constrained within the limitations of NIH. And the NIH people say, oh, no, it'll be independent. It won't be subject to those same kind of strictures. I find it interesting that some former NIH people, including Chris Austin, the uh, the former director of NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Science, told me that he doesn't think that ARPA-H will be able to, to work effectively if it's at NIH, that it will be subject to the same kind of bureaucratic constraints that seems to have stifled um, NCATS and that, and that basically that arpa was created to go around. It's sort of ironic to create an institution that's supposed to be doing the things that NIH can't do and then say, yeah, but we're going to put it at NIH. One of the compromises that's being talked about is to actually physically locate it somewhere different, maybe even outside of Washington, D.C., maybe put it in Boston, Cambridge, Massachusetts, maybe some other place, and you know, kind of emphasize the, the autonomy from, from NIH.
3: I guess maybe optimistically, I was impressed by the NIH program that aimed to fast-track COVID test development. Um, it was a pretty big step away from NIH's business as usual and did a very kind of product-focused go-no-go series of research financings that um, it gave me some insight into, oh, maybe NIH can do things within its bounds that are pretty different from its
1: business as usual. That's the that's Rad Yeah. Personally, I'm not taking a winner in this battle. I I don't really know who's right. I think that what's going to be probably more important than where it's located is who heads it and how much autonomy and kind of how much stature the first director of ARPA-H has.
0: All right. There's a House hearing this week to consider 22 bills related to industry. Some of them will make it into the user fee reauthorization, including competing approaches on accelerated approval. That's what I'd like to hone in on, Steve. We've got Pallone from the great state of New Jersey with one take and Rogers with another. Can you break that down for us?
1: Yeah, real quickly. Of course, accelerated approval has been in the news a lot. Members of Congress are concerned about it. It's in the news because of the Adjuhelm accelerated approval. So the chairman of the uh, Energy and Commerce Committee, Frank Pallone, has introduced a bill that would introduce a lot more rigor into the accelerated approval process. It doesn't say anything really about the standards for granting accelerated approval, but it has a lot to say about the requirements for demonstrating clinical benefit after accelerated approval has been granted. It would give FDA the authority to require that post-approval trials be underway at the time that accelerated approval is granted. It would set a kind of automatic expiration for accelerated approval if companies fail to uh, conduct the trials in a timely manner or if the results aren't confirmatory of um, clinical benefit. The the, um, bill that um, McMorris-Rogers has introduced is quite different. It specifies that sponsors can use real-world evidence or patient registries to fulfill requirements for confirming clinical benefit. It creates a system for FDA to approve clinical development plans, including approving endpoints and post-approval studies during development. And it really doesn't create any new requirements for the post-approval period.
0: All right. And McMorris Rogers, uh, representative from... Washington up in the PNW. She is the committee's ranking member. We did a little legwork for you all breaking down all of these bills. You can find that story on our website, biocentury.com, complete with a sponsor and a summary of each of the bills. Steve, let's turn to Ukraine. Pharmas have been responding to the crisis. What's the latest?
1: So the latest today is that Pfizer made an announcement. Albert Borla, the the CEO of Pfizer, said that the company would continue to sell drugs in Russia. He said it was a humanitarian imperative that they continue to sell their drugs there. But he said that any profits from drugs that are sold in Russia would be donated to relief for Ukraine. Other pharma companies have made major commitments to provide relief in Ukraine. When we've called them and tried to find out what the future of some of their R&D collaborations in Russia will be, they, uh, they haven't really responded. Pfizer and some other companies have paused the clinical trials that they're doing in Russia. And I think they've pretty well committed that they're not going to do new clinical trials in Russia. A, a, a couple of other things that we reported on last week on the patent front, the Russian government put out a decree giving Russian companies and individuals the right to basically to steal um, intellectual property from any company or individual who's based in a country that Russia considers to be unfriendly, which basically means any country that's opposing the war in, in Ukraine. Um, the Ukrainian Patent Office put something up on their Facebook page saying that they're continuing to work despite the war. And the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office issued a statement basically cutting off communications with its counterpart in Russia and its counterpart in Belarus.
0: All right. Uh, Thanks for that update, Steve. And I know you're continuing to follow the life sciences angle on the Ukraine crisis. If you haven't checked out the BioCentury show, I like to think you're in for a treat. We launched the show which is open access earlier this year. It's a 30 minute in-depth conversation with some of the most prominent leaders in life sciences. Last week's show is up. Simone spoke in depth with Otello from Omega Funds. It's always a treat to have Otello on. Lots of interesting stuff to say about the Ukraine crisis, the talent crunch in life sciences, as well as The Downturn. It's not a particularly upbeat show, but uh, a lot of important ground was covered. Our other shows are also available. Scott Gottlieb, John Euler, Steve Pearson. Soon we'll have Jamie Rubin on from EQRX. So please do tune in, the BiocenturyShow.com. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.